Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June 30th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Melissa and I are in northwest Arkansas until Sunday morning. We will be going to central Arkansas to see our good friend Sonny Eanes on Sunday afternoon. We will be in central Louisiana, I pray, on Monday afternoon. And how we get home from there, I have not yet decided. We might go through Mississippi and Alabama we along the coast. We might go through the central part of the state. I really haven't made my mind up. The central part of those states, I should say. I really haven't decided, and that depends on whether or not we hear from any other good brethren who may want to see us on our way home. We're not really in a rush. It would be nice to be in Panama City, but we're not trying to hurry. Tonight we are going to present part nine of Clifton Emma Heiser's series of special notices to all who deny to seed line. The camp of the saints is surrounded by the enemies of Yahweh our God, who are also the historical enemies of our Danic race. And while these prophecies concerning the last days are being fulfilled before our very eyes, among Christians there are multiple layers of deceit. The first is, of course, all of those Judaized Christians who seem to be oblivious to the fact that there is even a problem. And then, behind them, are the anti-seedliners who may understand that we are in a time of trouble, but they refuse to properly identify the enemies. And they refuse to acknowledge that the other races dwelling amongst us are nothing more than a scourge for our disobedience, by which Yahweh our God has permitted his enemies to assail us very much like the story of Job. Yahweh permitted Satan to try Job, and Job prevailed because he never accused God for his troubles. Rather, he waited for his God, to take him out of his troubles. Finally, there are those who claim to know the enemy, but who fail to properly draw the lines. The other races amongst us are not people. Rather, they are the caterpillars, cankerworms, palmer worms, and locusts of the prophecy of Joel. They are the beasts of Isaiah chapter 56 who are called to arise and devour as the watchmen dumbly sit by like dogs tending to their own bellies. When a rodeo clown such as Ted Wyland sends Bibles to Nigerians, we end up with niggers supposing themselves to be Christians. Then once we accept the concept that a nigger can be a Christian, how do we prohibit them from marrying white Christian women? Our own scriptures are then used against us. So now why 
So now we know why the word of Yahweh says in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that for our disobedience thy sons and thy daughters shall be given unto another people and thine eye shall look and fail with longing for them all the day long and there shall be no might in thy hand. Where it says another people these are Ted Wyland's niggers or Eli James's Mexicans and by sending them Bibles Wyland assists the enemy when instead it was his duty to teach the nature of sin and the need for repentance to the sheep of God's pasture. Ted has abandoned his true responsibility and has boasted about making Christians out of beasts. He is a pastor for Satan and a minister of death no matter what he preaches about the twelve tribes in their history. In ancient times, the false prophets also knew of the history of Israel. And when when fire came down from heaven at the beckoning of Elijah, they were nevertheless devoured. We await the day when Yahweh sees it fit to do such a thing once again. And with this, we will commence with our presentation of Clifton and the Heisers. Special notice to all Who Deny Two Seed Line, Part 9. Clifton opens by saying that this matter of two seed line is of the utmost importance in our day, for we are beginning to see the culmination of this age-old enmity between the two seeds coming to a head. While it has been lying, festering, just below the surface for several thousands of years, and I don't think it was quite that long, but at least for a thousand years. Today it is reaching its peak. It's like a giant abscess getting ready to erupt and spit out all of its foul, infectious, corrupt, putrefying poison. And while these great evil underground forces are at work, churchianity sits idly on the sidelines pretending that all is well. In fact, the infection from this giant abscess is seeping into their midst, and they consider it Christian. And today, the denominational churches do indeed accept fornication, which is race-mixing, as being Christian. But reading the Old Testament, Yahweh also warned the children of Israel repeatedly to remain separate from the other races, even from other Adamic races. They also accept Sodomites and many other sinners whom should be rejected from our communities. Once upon a time, there were serious social and economic consequences for people who chose to lead sinful lives. Those consequences helped to keep people away from such sin. So in this respect, Jewish egalitarianism has damaged society in subliminal ways. But even in Christian identity circles, we tolerate far too much deviation from the word of our God. Clowns like Ted Wheeland, who has never repented of his sending Bibles to Nigerians, or Eli James, who would admit Mexicans as Christians, are accepted in Christian identity circles. 
We call that compromise identity, and with that, we should have no part. The children of Israel were chastised for even trading with other nations in Hosea chapter 2, where the word of Yahweh says of the nation of Israel, the mother of the people, for their mother is played the harlot. She did conceive them has done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. So Yahweh announced his intention. And in the very next verse he said, Therefore behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths and she shall follow after her lovers but she shall not overtake them and she shall seek them but she shall not find them then shall she say I will go and return to my first husband for then it was better with me than now for she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and I multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Trading with other nations and races, the children of Israel took the gifts that they received from God and prepared them for Baal. The ancient Israelites went off into punishment because when they began consorting with other nations in trade, they ostensibly began respecting the gods of those other nations. Yahweh is the God of Israel. And as the psalm says, he never gave his law, statutes, or judgments to any other people. David praised God for that. And that is the ideal which we should seek to uphold. But by giving Bibles to aliens, we blaspheme our God. Clifton continues talking about the Ted Whelans or Wylans of Christian identity. And he says, as if this were not bad enough, the anti-seedliners disavow the cause of the infection. To the anti-seedliners, it's just a theological game of words. They simply haven't done their homework on the subject. And before we continue, let us say that the anti-seedliners usually acknowledge that there is an infection but they cannot diagnose the source of the problem properly. And while Clifton's graphic explanation here may seem extravagant to some, it is nonetheless true. Universalism, the idea that the other races of so-called people can somehow be equals or peers of our white Adamic race, and can even join the children of the covenant in the body of Christ, is a poison injected into white Christian society by the Jews who seek to destroy it. And it was injected hundreds of years ago. To accept any form of universalism is to accept defeat at the hands of the Jews who have been plotting against Christendom and against the Adamic race ever since Yahweh planted Adam in the Garden of Eden. In many places, the scripture 
tells us that our God will receive us once we come out from them and be separate. Come out from among them and be separate. This we are told in both the Old Testament and the New. As Paul of Tarsus quoted from Isaiah chapter 52 in his second epistle to the Corinthians. There is no restoration without separation. Clifton continues with an example of the homework which the anti-seedliners may have done. And he says, to show you this, I will now quote excerpts from Dr. Lightfoot in his commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud and Hebraica from volume 2 concerning Matthew chapter 27 verses 38 through 46. And citing Lightfoot, Clifton says that among the monsters of the Jewish routes preceding the destruction of the city, a reference to Jerusalem itself, the multitude of robbers and the horrible slaughters committed by them, and that's all explained in the pages of Flavius Josephus, deservedly claim the first consideration which, next to the just vengeance of God against that most wicked nation, you may justly ascribe to diverse originals. It is no wonder that if that nation abounded beyond measure with a vagabond, dissolute and lewd sort of young men, since by means of polygamy and the divorces of their wives at pleasure, and the nation's unspeakable addictedness to lasciviousness and whoredoms, there could not be continually I'm sorry, there cannot but continually spring up bastards and an offspring born only to beggary or rapine as wanting both sustenance and ingenuous education. The foolish and sinful indulgence of the council, the Sanhedrin, could not but nurse up all kinds of broods of wicked men while they scarce ever put anyone to death though never so wicked as being an Israelite, whom a, or Jew in reality, who must not by any means be touched. All the rout indeed and force of hell was let loose at that time against Christ, and without either bridle or chain. He himself calls it the power of darkness. Citing Luke 22.53 God who had foretold of old that the serpent should bruise the heel of the promised seed, and now that time has come, had slackened the devil's chain, which, in regard of men, the divine providence used to hold in his hand, so that all the power and all the rancor of hell might, freely and without restraint, assault Christ, and that all that malice that was in the devil against the whole elect of God would be summed up and gathered together into one head, and might at one stroke and onset be brandished against Christ without measure. And now Clifton wants to make a point in this citation, the point being that the 17th century British cleric, John Lightfoot, understood the race mixing which was going on amongst the earliest Judeans and up through the time of Christ, and that he connected that race mixing to the power of darkness,
to the raising of broods of wicked men, and the power and all the rancor of hell. So while Lightfoot seemed confused on the seat of the promise, evidently limiting that concept to Christ himself, he never he nevertheless understood the racial aspect of evil, especially where he also connected these bastards to all that malice that was in the devil against the whole elect of God. Wherever these bastards prevail, we see society follow the pattern of Sodom and Gomorrah rather than of the kingdom of heaven. And Lightfoot notes the similar immorality which had developed in ancient Judea, which is fully explained in the pages of the histories of Flavius Josephus. However, in respect of our topic, Clifton responds to Lightfoot's comments, and he says, If you listen to the anti-seedliners, they will claim that there was no power of hell at work in the crucifixion of the Messiah. They delegate all of that to some kind of spiritual hocus-pocus, making a mockery of the foundational tenets of Scripture. And we would warn that Scripture, or any history, is always in danger of being oversimplified when men attempt to understand or explain it. Surely there were Israelites among those who were consenting to the death of Christ. There are Israelites in our society today who consent to all of the evil being perpetrated by the enemies of Yahweh our God. But the persecution of Christ was not engineered by Israelites. And today we know of the evil forces which lie behind the media and the money powers that have always been averse to Christendom and how they affect the world around us now. Rather, it was the princes of this world who had nothing to do with him who were responsible for the actions against Christ. And the spawn of that same brood are responsible for the corrupt conditions which we now experience. These are the wicked hands Peter spoke of where it is written in chapter 2 of the book of Acts that him, speaking of Christ, being delivered by the determining counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. As Paul of Tarsus also noted, speaking of the Jews of his time, they killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, meaning the true Israelites who turned to Christ. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. But here Clifton offers an explanation from another perspective. And he says, I address this subject of the bruising of Messiah's heel in my research papers proving the two seed line seduction of Eve. This passage by Dr. Lightfoot vindicates, vindicates what I said in that article. And under the subtitle, Yahshua's heel bruised by Judas. Clifton says, We have a direct connection here with Judas and the serpent of Genesis 3, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. 
We can see the connection between Judas and the serpent if we read John chapter 13, verse 18, where the words of Christ say, I speak not of you all, addressing his apostles. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Clifton says that the scripture spoken of here, which was fulfilled in Judas, was Genesis 3.15, and he asks, Does that sound spiritual? Judas was a Kenite, Canaanite, Jew devil, a descendant of Cain, fathered by Satan. However, there is a problem here, because it says that he, referring to Judas, has lifted up his heel against me. Whereas Genesis 3.15 says that thou, speaking to the seed of the serpent, shalt bruise his, and Clifton interprets that to refer to Yahshua Christ, thou shalt bruise his heel. And Clifton asks, is it the heel of Judas or Yahshua that is affected? And in response to that question, he says, I am quite certain that John 13.18 is referring to Genesis 3.15, as it is indicating that it is a fulfillment of Scripture. Tell me, what other Scripture could it be? There isn't any. There is another Scripture, Psalm chapter 41, verse 9, that reads similarly to John 13.18. But John 13.18 is not a fulfillment of Psalm 41.9. As a matter of fact, Psalm 49 is not, Psalm 41 verse 9 is not a prophecy about anything. The prophecy then can only be Genesis 3.15. And Genesis 3.15 is definitely a prophecy. Therefore, there has to be a slight mistranslation in Genesis 3.15. Let's try to render it in a manner which makes some sense. And Clifton, attempting to reword Genesis 3.15, says, And I will put enmity between thee and a woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It, referring to her seed, shall bruise thy head, and thy heel shall, and Clifton puts in parentheses, rise up and bruise him, referring to her seed. And I cannot ag quite agree with that rewording of Genesis 3.15, and I will explain why. So before we proceed, there are several things here which we must address. First, John chapter 13, verse 18, is a direct quotation of Psalm 41.9, and the two verses certainly are related. David, being a type, or a model, or a foreshadow, of Christ. Christ himself related his travails to David's travails, where it says in Psalm 41 that, and I'll read from verse 7, all that hate me whisper together against me. Against me do they devise my hurt. An evil disease, or as we read in the gospel accounts, an evil spirit, an evil disease, they say, cleaves fast unto him. And now that he lies, he shall rise up no more. Yeah, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. 
And that's the psalm. That's the 41st psalm. And these things were clearly fulfilled in Christ as the circumstances of his ministry are explained in the gospel accounts. So we see a prophecy of the relationship between Yahshua Christ and the devil, Judas Iscariot, as well as the attitude that all of his enemies had towards him, is embedded in the 41st Psalm and in the circumstances of the aspects of the life of David, and that is what a type is in Scripture. But Clifton is attempting to reinterpret Genesis 3.15 so that it would agree with Psalm 41.9 and John 13.18, and examining the Hebrew or its earliest Greek translations, we cannot be certain that there is a sound basis for that. Rather, to me, it seems that Psalm 41.9 and subsequently John 13.18 only invoke the language of Genesis 3.15, and I myself would prefer to leave the passage unmolested. But nevertheless, by that invocation, we may understand the connection which Clifton is making is indeed a valid one. Clifton continues and he says, It's not the seed of the serpent that was to bruise the heel of Yahshua, but the seed of the serpent will lift up his heel and bruise Yahshua, the seed of the woman. Clifton places that in parentheses, the seed of the woman. Now, Yahshua is not the only seed of the woman, and it's very good of Clifton to make that distinction. He says all of Eve's descendants are the seed of the woman, and that's absolutely true. And Clifton says, once we understand that it is the seed of the serpent in the person of Judas that was to lift up his heel against the Messiah, we can better understand Isaiah chapter 53, 5. And Clifton quotes the famous messianic prophecy of Isaiah where it says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. Clifton did well, of course, to connect Isaiah chapter 56 to the Passion of the Christ. He also did well to point out that the adversaries of Christ were to lift up the heel against him, which is found in the 41st Psalm. However, we would assert that while Psalm 41.9 invokes Genesis 3.15 by its similar language, that both statements are truly independent of one another. Yet the one statement also helps to lead us to understand that the other is also being fulfilled. The serpent would both bruise the heel of the woman's seed and lift its own heel against the Messiah, as David's enemy did against him. Genesis 3.15 was fulfilled in one aspect, in Christ, as the serpent bruised his heel. Killing his body, he was still going to live. He was still going to live, and the serpent could not catch him where he was going. In that aspect, we see the bruising of the heel 
is a sign that the important part, which is the rest of the body, would escape injury. This is true of Christ, and it is true of the entire Adamic race, as Clifton correctly points out that Genesis 3.15 refers to the collective seed of the woman and not merely to a single individual. On the other hand, the enemy of David raised his heel against him, and Judas Iscariot, who shared bread at the table of Christ, raised his heel against him after the matter of Psalm 41.9. And while the language invokes Genesis 3.15, it is used in a different manner. One other place in Scripture where similar language invokes Genesis 3.15, but where the symbols are also used in a slightly different manner, is in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, where Paul both prayed and prophesied concerning his readers, and said, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. That Satan was the Edomite Jew collectively, and the Romans were a portion of the seed of the woman which was to bruise the head of the serpent. The Romans bruised the head of Satan 13 years after Paul wrote those words, in 70 AD when Jerusalem was taken by Titus. By this we we must understand the nature of the Jew, and this is something that the anti-seedliners deny. When will we awaken to the treachery of Ted Wyland? and his cronies, who denied that these Jews, and today's Jews, are themselves Satan. Collectively, they are Satan. Paul of Tarsus called them Satan. Two two Thessalonians, I'm sorry, two Thessalonians chapter 2 is a second witness to the veracity of the interpretation. For now, however, Clifton continues to discuss the concept presented as a type for Christ in Psalm 41.9. And he says one good comment on John 13.18, which is a direct quotation of that verse in the Psalms, is from the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary on the whole, whole Bible on page 1058. And quoting Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, Clifton says, I speak not of you all. Of course, they in turn are quoting from the Gospel of John. The happy are ye of verse 17 being on no supposition applicable to Judas. I know whom I have chosen, again quoting from John 13, in the higher sense, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. One has been added to your number, in other words, by no accident or mistake, who is not of mine, but just that he might fulfill his predicted destiny. And then quoting John again, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says, He that eats bread with me, and reword that, did eat of my bread. And they go on to say, as Clifton continues his citation, It was Judas that raised up his heel against him and bruised him. It probably should be pointed out here what is meant by lifting up the heel. It is described as someone who kicks out at the person who is feeding him. Judas, planning to betray Yahshua while eating of the sacrificial supper, did just that, 
and it is known as lifting up the heel. This heel in John chapter 13 verse 18 is the same heel as in Genesis 3.15. This type of action was considered one of the most insulting things a man could do. Of course, what else would you expect of a devil? And that's the end of the citation and Clifton's. Before we continue with Clifton's comments, we will say that Clifton seems to be following Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown in the opinion that the heel of John 13.18 and Psalm 41.9 is the same as the heel of Genesis 3.15. I myself would not make such an insistence, but rather I see each passage, Psalm 41.9 and Genesis 3.15, as describing a different aspect of the same situation with the understanding that the language found in the 41st Psalm, quoted by Christ in John, had been selected to invoke the earlier passage of Genesis 3.15, without duplicating its exact meaning. So Clifton continues, and he says, just before this lifting up the heel on the part of Judas, by partaking of the Last Supper, some interesting statements are made. They were having a foot-washing lesson from Yahshua, Verse 10 says, Yahshua saith to him, He that is washed need not save to wash his feet, but is clean, or pure, every whit, and ye are clean, Christ speaking collectively to the disciples, but not all. And Clifton says, Yahshua is indicating that all the disciples are clean, or pure, racially, but no amount of washing would make Judas clean and the interpretation is valid. If Christ was not making a reference to the inherent nature of his disciples, then the statement, he that is washed need not save to wash his feet, meaning needs not to wash any further except to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. If Christ is not making a reference to the inherent nature of his disciples, then that statement is pure nonsense, since he that is washed would have no need to wash his feet. But Judas, having been a Canaanite, and therefore a devil, could not possibly be washed even if his feet were clean. Returning to Clifton, he speaks of of a later passage concerning Judas. A second statement, in this 18th verse is also very interesting. I speak not of you all. Again, Yahshua is excluding Judas from the others. I know whom I have chosen, meaning I am not deceived in my choice. I knew what was going to happen from the very beginning of the enmity of the serpent. I have chosen Judas as a serpent, and I plainly foresaw that he would raise up the heel and deliver me meaning deliver him to his enemies. Did not I foretell this at the time of the curse upon the serpent? And Clifton cites Matthew chapter 12, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 26, from verse 14. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests, and said unto them, What will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him, 
for thirty pieces of silver, and from that time he sought the opportunity to betray him. And here I must offer a clarification, and say that Christ did not choose Judas to be a serpent. Rather, Judas was a serpent by the fact of his birth and lineage, and for that reason Christ chose to include him in the group as the man who would ultimately betray him. Now, Clifton, of course, knows this, but I thought I must clarify that where Clifton had written that reflecting the attitude of Christ that he had chosen Judas as a serpent. Judas was a serpent. Clifton knows that. And of course, he's informing us that Christ knew that. Having the foreknowledge of God, Christ knew that he had to be betrayed in order to be crucified and chose the serpent. Understanding that, that serpent, Judas, would have the natural inclination to betray him, thereby fulfilling the prophetic aspect of the 41st Psalm, Psalm 41.9. Ever since the time of Christ, this same pattern has both been fulfilled many times in history, (coughs) as kings and princes took Jews into their confidence, as men such as Joseph McCarthy had Jews as their closest advisors. Close advisors to Tsar Nicholas were Jews. Close advisors to Adolf Hitler were very probably part Jews. Not that Hitler chose them on purpose. They always weaseled their way in. The closest advisor and the banker of Kaiser Wilhelm II was a Jew. And we never ever learn. Senator Joseph McCarthy had a Jew as his closest advisor. Why did we not learn from Scripture? Because in our Christian pulpits, there are many more Ted Wylands or Stephen Joneses than we have had Clifton Emmaheisers or Bertrand Comparais. As a reminder, The word Iscariot is a Hellenized version of the Hebrew phrase Ish-Kerioth, or Man of Kerioth. Kerioth was a town of southern Judea, which the Edomites had inhabited after the deportations of Israel and Judah, and they were converted en masse by the Maccabees just like the rest of the Edomites of Judea. Judas, whom Christ had called a devil, was certainly one of these Edomites. All of the other original apostles were from Galilee and not from Judea. Clifton continues and says, speaking of the behavior of Judas Iscariot, if you can't see Jew written all over the this action on the part of this serpent, Judas, then you have to be blind. He was only doing his father's bidding. Inciting John chapter 12 from verse 4, Clifton writes, Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? 
This happens at a time when Christ had his body and feet anointed by a woman. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein, the bag being the treasury where the apostles collected their money. Clifton says, not only was this serpent Jew a traitor, he was a thief, just like the Jewish IRS and the Federal Reserve of today. Here is more evidence that Judas was the offspring of Satan. And for many centuries, Jews have gravitated into the vocations related to banking and money management, just like Judas Iscariot. They have always been thieves, and this is another lesson which the Ted Wylands of the world would prevent us from learning, that this is their genetic nature because they are of that seed of the serpent. They have not done this simply because they are somehow good at mathematics or finance. The greatest mathematicians have been white men, and the only economics they require are outlined in the laws of their God. Rather, the Jews have taken to these vocations because they understand the power which comes from the control of a worldly economy. Continuing with Clifton, he says, like the spirit that is within Yahweh's children, the seed of the woman, so there is a counter-spirit within the serpent's children. That is why it just came natural for Judas to betray Yahshua. It says here that the devil put it into the heart of Judas to betray the Messiah. The children of Satan have a certain nature about them, and under various circumstances, they will react in predictable patterns of behavior. The Messiah understood exactly what the pattern of the serpent Judas would be. That behavior pattern is yet more evidence that the Jews are a satanic seed line. You cannot change the nature of a rattlesnake, nor can you change the nature of a Jew. So much for Jews for Jesus. And here Clifton also cited Jeremiah 13.23, which says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin, or the leopard his spots? Speaking of bastards. Then may ye also do good, that are accustomed to do evil. And Clifton continues, All this is totally oblivious to the anti-seedliners. Speaking further on page 83 of volume 2, John Lightfoot, of volume 2 of his commentary, John Lightfoot says of that nation, referring to Judea at the time of Christ, that the nation under the second temple was given to magical arts beyond measure, that it was given to easiness of believing all manner of delusions beyond measure. That it was given to... I'm sorry. And one may safely suspect that those voices which they thought to be from heaven and noted with the name Bathcall were either formed by the devil in the air to deceive the people or by magicians by devilish art to promote their own affairs. So Lightfoot himself was slightly superstitious, believing that the devil was still in the air. The very same which I judge of the bath call, which is in my opinion also of the frequent appearances of Elias, 
which the leaves of the Talmud do everywhere abound. Evidently, the superstitious Jews saw Elias the prophet everywhere. Namely, that in very many places the stories are false, and in the rest the apparitions of him were diabolical, meaning they were coming from the devil in the air. Let me say that I understand that Paul of Tarsus spoke of the prince of the power of the air. But that doesn't mean that the devil is in the air. We learn in Revelation that Satan was cast out of heaven. He was cast down to earth, and his place was found no more in heaven. You could have the power of the air without being in the air, and that would be my assertion. We must take note that even if Lightfoot believed that these musings of the Talmud and the Kabbalah represented historical events, that does not mean that they were actually historical. The Jewish books are full of lies and cannot be trusted. Clifton replies with an explanation of the Kabbalah, and he says that the magical arts used by the Jews is called the Kabbalah. According to Warren Weston in his book Father of Lies on page 51, the four collections of works composing the dogmatic Kabbalah are the Sefer Yetzirah, or the Book of Formation. It treats of the cosmogony as symbolized by ten numbers and twenty-two letters of the Hebrew alphabet, which it calls the thirty-two paths, or symbols, with the esoteric zero, making thirty-three in all. The whole Kabbalah is usually classed under four heads. The practical Kabbalah, the literal Kabbalah, the unwritten Kabbalah, and the dogmatic Kabbalah. And then the second portion of the dogmatic Kabbalah, the Zohar, or Book of Splendor, itself composed of five important books besides other treatises. These five are the Book of Concealed Mystery, the Greater Holy Assembly, the Lesser Holy Assembly, the House of the Elohim, and the Book of the Revolutions of the Soul, and the third portion of the Dogmatic Kabbalah, the Sefer Sephiroth, or Book of Numbers, or Emanations. Sephira is number in the singular, Sephiroth in the plural. And finally, the Ash Metzareth, or Purifying Fire, dealing with alchemy. Clifton goes on to state after we end the quotation from Warren Weston. While a good deal of the form of the Kabbalah can be traced to the second century, the substance appears to originate from remote antiquity, possibly as remote as Cain, and of course I myself would contest much of this. In the book Trail of the Serpent by Miss Stoddard on page 25, the Kabbalah is described as the practical or magical Kabbalah with its combinations and correspondences. And it was the astrological, magical, and magnetic basis used by the alchemists and magicians of the Middle Ages in working their transmutations and conjurations. It was impregnated with the fluidic magic derived from very ancient cults and still practiced at the time of the captivity among the Persians and the Chaldeans. 
Today, all Rosicrucians and Kabbalistic sects use this magical Kabbalah for their works of divining, clairvoyance, hypnotic and magnetic healing, making of talismans, and contacting their mysterious masters. As the Jewish writer Bernard Lazar said, secret societies represented the two sides of the Jewish mind, practical rationalism and pantheism, that pantheism which, metaphysical reflection of the belief of in one God, ended at times in Kabbalistic theurgy, and theurgy is the effect of the divine or supernatural in worldly affairs. Where um, Miss Stoddard makes the claim that these Kabbalistic magical practices were used, what were employed or dated to the captivity among the Persians and Chaldeans. She is assuming that because the Magi were called Magi, that they practiced these black arts found in the Kabbalah, and that's not true at all, and she can't say that. She has absolutely no documentation to prove that. She's only making an, an assumption, because the Magi were called Magi. Now, there were mystical arts at the time, there's no doubt, but we can't simply assume that the Magi employed them. There seem, there seem to be both evil mystical arts employed at a time, which we see in, in, in the use in, in the Babylonian temples of the Chaldeans, and we see in, and I'll probably mention this soon, in, in Acts chapter 19, 600 years after the deportations among the Chaldeans and the Persians. However, there also seem to be a higher knowledge that was employed for good, which the Magi had, as they traced the expected star to Christ in Bethlehem. And simply because they were able to do that, does not mean that they practice those black and wicked magical arts that she is attempting to ascribe to them. So I don't necessarily agree with Miss Stoddard. It is my opinion that the usual explanations of the Kabbalah are wanting or even misleading. While there have always been mystery cults and magical books, as we witness in Acts chapter 19, at verse 19, Paul converted a village of people to, to Christianity, and they burned their magic books, which were of great value. While these things have always existed, the Kabbalah, as it began to develop in modern times, was compiled, compiled and published in 13th century Spain. It has no greater authority than that of some medieval rabbis who plotted to usurp the emerging sciences. While it may have been a compilation, in part, of earlier Jewish mysticism, as well as Neoplatonism and other Greek and Eastern traditions, its claims of great antiquity and the connections which the Jews assert to the biblical patriarchs are not legitimate.
not at all. These claims are the devices of Jews, by which they assert the Kabbalah to have great authority, and they are nothing more than Jewish lies and Jewish fables. Clifton continues, and he says, Let us now see an example of what is contained in the Kabbalah. For this I will now quote from The Esoteric Tradition by Gottfried de Puricher, volume 1, page 62. And Gottfried de Puricher, or Puricher, is a theosophist, sort of of the Madame Blavatsky mold. De Perker says, turning to the Jews, one may find in the Zohar a Hebrew word meaning splendor, which is perhaps the greatest textbook of the Jewish Kabbalah, and which has been mentioned before, earlier in his writing, I gather, a statement to the effect that the man who understands the Hebrew Bible in its literal meaning is a fool. Every word of it, says the Zohar in this connection, has a secret and sublime sense which the wise, that is, the initiated, know. One of the greatest of the Jewish rabbis of the Middle Ages, Mamonides, who died in 1204, writes that we should never take literally what is written in the book of the creation, nor hold the same ideas about it that the people hold. If it were otherwise, our learned ancient sages would have would not have been or would not have gone, that seems to be a typographical error, would not have gone to so great labor in order to conceal the real sense, and to hold before the vision of the uninstructed people the veil of allegory which conceals the truth that it contains. And Clifton noted the typographical error, so it must have existed in the original. Taken literally, that work contains the most absurd and far-fetched ideas of the divine. Whoever can guess the real sense ought to guard carefully his knowledge not to divulge it. This is a rule taught by our wise men, especially in connection with the work of the six days. And of course that sounds something like the Protocols of Zion, but of course the works are related. The Jews rather naturally lie but they do not lie about everything. However, the proper way to interpret many of the allegories of the Old Testament scripture, and especially the allegories of Genesis, is revealed in the parables and the revelation of Christ. Clifton replies to the citation and the attitude of Maimonides, and he says, It is true that the Bible is written to a great degree in allegory and symbols, and if we don't understand them, we cannot grasp the message contained therein. The Jews, on the other hand, and this is Clifton describing where they go overboard, the Jews, on the other hand, attach an occult meaning to every word and phrase. Their views of Scripture are so foreign to our perspectives, one would not recognize them. In spite of this, their view is not always entirely incorrect. In other words, don't discredit our views just because the Jews share some of those views. From the above, it is obvious that the Jews do not believe in a creation of six 24-hour days, as do some Christian fundamentalists. 
If we take the same stance as the anti-seedliners, like Ted Whelan, Jeffrey Weekly, Stephen Jones, Jack Moore, Charles Weissman, etc., that everything found in Jewish writings is evil, we will have to take the opposite position and start advocating a creation of six literal 24-hour days. Can you see now how absurd some of the positions taken by the anti-seedliners are? You will remember, as I showed you before, if we throw everything out which can be found in the Talmud and other Jewish writings, we will have to pitch out most of the contents of our Bibles, along with the truth of our identity. One thing I have noticed, Clifton says, with the anti-seedliners, is that they are strangely quiet about Jewish history, and never seem to quote Jewish history books. This should run up a red flag for us, indicating that they are not as knowledgeable on the subject as they pretend to be, and that hardly qualifies them as students who have studied to show themselves approved. As I have said often before, we need a Bible in one hand, and a history book's book in the other, Jewish history books without exception. Referring again to a commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud and Hebraica by John Lightfoot, in volume 2, on page 209, Lightfoot writes, that nation and generation, referring again to Judea at the time of Christ, might be called adulterous literally. For what else, I beseech you, was there irreligious polygamy than continual adultery? And what else was there ordinary practice of divorcing wives, no less irreligious, according to every man's foolish or naughty will? So Whitefoot understood that the Jews were a literally corrupt race. We know for a fact, by the time of Christ, that the Jews were a literally corrupt and bastardized race. But Clifton wants us to understand that Lightfoot knew that as well. He then continues under the heading, Clifton then continues under the heading, Proselytes for Gain. And he says again on Lightfoot, volume 2, pages 295 through 297, concerning Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 and 14. Under a pretense of mighty devotion, but especially under the goodly show of long prayers, they so drew over the minds of devout persons to them, especially of women, and among them the richer widows, that by subtle attractives they either drew out or wrested away their goods and estates, nor did they want nets of counterfeit authority, when from the chair they pronounced according to their pleasures, of the dowry and estate befalling a widow, and assume to themselves the power of determining concerning those things. And it should be obvious that Lightfoot's source of these statements is the Gospel itself, and specifically Matthew chapter 23. Clifton's citation continues, Yet in making of these, they used their utmost endeavors for the sake of their own gain, that they might some way or other drain their purses, meaning drain the purses of the widows, after they had drawn them in under the show of religion, or make some use or benefit to themselves by them. 
The same covetousness, therefore, under a veil of hypocrisy in devouring widows' houses, which our Savior condemned in the former clause, he here also condemns in hunting after proselytes, which the scribes and Pharisees were at all kinds of pains to bring over to them, not that they cared for proselytes, whom they accounted as a scab and a plague, but that the more they could draw over to their religion, the greater drought, which means in this sense, which means quite archaically, a load or a catch, the greater drought they should have for their gain, and the more purses to fish in. These, therefore, being so proselyted, and they sound like Roman Catholics, right? They made doubly more the children of hell than themselves. For when they had drawn them into their net, having got their prey, they were no further concerned what became of them, so they got some benefit by them. They might perish in ignorance, superstition, atheism, and all kinds of wickedness. This was no matter of concern to the scribes and Pharisees, only let them, let them remain in Judaism, that they might lord it over their consciences and purses. John Lightfoot on the greed and rapacity of the Jewish rabbis. And of course, religion has always been a business centered around the administration of rituals and the impression that man needs some intermediary endowed with special knowledge in order to have communion with God. But Christianity is truth and not religion. It dispenses with the need for rituals, while all Adamic men have access, equal access, to God through Christ, who is God incarnate, so there is no need for any intermediary. Clifton now changes the subject, but continues in his endeavor to prove that the Jews are bastards. Under the subtitle, Arab proselytes to Judaism. Speaking of needing a Jewish history, and I myself hate to follow Jewish histories, but there are some elements of Jewish history which we could never obtain from non-Jewish sources. And this is certainly one of them. Clifton says, The main index of the history of the Jews by Heinrich Gretz, which was written, which was published probably in the 1840s, 1850s, if my memory serves me correctly, is found in volume 6, and on page 512 are listed the various peoples proselyted by the Jews during their extended history. The list is too extensive to elaborate on here. We will key in on volume 3, pages 60 through 62, concerning the subtitle, Arabs Become Converted to Judaism, approximately 450 to 500 AD. And let me say that this is the time frame in which the Theodosian emperors of Byzantine Rome had put into effect laws which made it very difficult for the Jews to operate within the Byzantine Empire. 
and at this time many Jews were leaving the Byzantine Empire and traveling into Khazaria in the east and into Arabia and, and other parts of Africa in the south. Citing Heinrich Gretz, Clifton says, Happily, the Arabian Jews bethought them of the genealogy of the Arabs as set forth in the first book of the Pentateuch. The imaginings that all of these Arabs were descendants of Joktan and Ishmael and others, which we will get to shortly. That's true in part. And seized upon it as the instrument by which to prove their kinship with them. Arabian Jews with Arab non-Jews. The Jews were convinced that they were related to the Arabs on two sides through Yachtan, or in the King James Version, Joktan, and through Ishmael. Under their instruction, therefore, the two principal Arabian tribes traced back the line of ancestors to these two progenitors, the real Arabs, the Himyarites, supposing themselves to be descendants from Joktan, the pseudo-Arabs, and this is Gretz's term, pseudo-Arab. I don't understand how anybody could be a fake bastard, but Gretz imagines that there could be real bastards and fake bastards. I don't get it. The pseudo-Arabs in the north, on the other hand, deriving their origin from Ishmael. These points of contact granted, the Jews had ample opportunity to multiply the proofs of their relationship. The Arabs loved genealogical tables and were delighted to be able to follow their descent in history so far into hoary antiquity. H-O-A-R-Y Accordingly, all this appeared to them both evident and flattering. They consequently exerted themselves to bring their genealogical records and traditions into unison with the biblical accounts. Although their traditions extended over less than six centuries on the one side to their progenitor Yarab and his sons or grandsons Himyar and Koktan, and on the other to Adnan, yet in their utter disregard of historical accuracy this fact constituted no obstacle. In other words, Gretz is saying that the Arabs, certain Arabs did have 600 years of genealogical tables. Without a scruple, the southern Arabians called themselves Koktanites, and the northern Arabians Ishmaelites. They readily accorded the Jews the rights of relationship, that is to say, equality and all the advantages attending it. So the Jews basically used the Bible to patronize the sand niggers. And a few years later, they would con them into Islam and into attacking Christendom. That's the way I see it. Even though this was written by a Jew, whom we can never trust by himself, this is not entirely inaccurate, even if the Arabs were sort of duped into believing it or, or into accepting it. The Nabatahian Arabs, who are mentioned even by the Romans and in ancient inscriptions, the Nabatahian Arabs do have a claim to partial descent from Ishmael through his son Nebaioth. At the same time, it is evident from scripture that Joktan and other early descendants of both Shem and Ham were originally settled in the land 
historically known as Arabia. But among the early inhabitants of this land were also the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and all the tribes of the Canaanites, as well as the Ishmaelites and the descendants of Abraham by Keturah. The land became known as Arabia because from the earliest times all of these tribes had mingled with the Canaanites and with one another. The word Arab is from a Hebrew word which means mixed, and it describes these people quite appropriately. Later in history, Nubians and other sub-Saharan Africans were evidently added to the mix, and it could be established that these Arabs spread themselves east all the way to the islands of the Pacific, and India, and Southeast Asia, where they took with them their African slaves and their idolatrous religions. However, where Gretz uses the term pseudo-Arab, we must deny that any such thing exists. An Arab is essentially a bastard, and in a racial sense, all bastards are indeed equal. Continuing with Clifton's citation from Heinrich Gretz, the Arabs were thus in intimate intercourse with the Jews, and the sons of the desert whose unpoetical mythology afforded them no matter for inspiration, derived much instruction from Judaism, and of course we would call that instruction Islam. Under these circumstances, many Arabs could not fail to develop peculiar affection for Judaism, and some embraced this religion, though their conversion had not been thought of by the Jews. As they had practiced circumcision while heathen, the conversion to Judaism was particularly easy. The members of a family among the Arabs were indissolubly bound to one another, and according to their philarchic, which really means tribal, philarchic constitution, the individuals themselves identified themselves with the tribe. This brought about that when a chieftain became a Jew, his whole clan at once followed him, the wisest, into the fold of Judaism. It is expressly recorded about several Arabian tribes that they were converted to Judaism. Such were the Benu Kinanha, a warlike quarrelsome clan related to the most respected Korashites of Mecca and several other families of the tribes Os and Khazaraz in Yathrib. And it could be established that the, wow, the pseudo-prophet of Islam was related to the Korshites, I'm fairly certain, who here we see are related to the Jews. Gretz says, as Clifton concludes his citation, especially memorable, however, in the history of the Arabs is the conversion of the powerful king of Yemen. The princes or kings of Yemen bore the name of Toba and at times ruled over the whole of Arabia. They traced their historical origin back to Himyar, their legendary origin to Cactan. Clifton now assesses this information from Heinrich Gretz, and he says, 
This is only one example of the extensive amount of Jewish proselytizing in history. This is the kind of history the anti seedliners are mute on. Their incompetent, inept commentary bears record record of their immaturity on the subject. And, as far as I'm concerned, this is only one way to prove that the modern Jews are bastards and not of Judah. Of course, the Judeans, by the time of Christ, were all mixed up with the Edomites and other Canaanites. So the Jews as we know them were never a pure race to begin with. But Clifton is endeavoring to demonstrate just how foolish Christians today sound when they insist that there may be such a thing as a true Jew, or a pure Jew, or a real Jew. What bastard can be true, or pure, or real? Now Clifton concludes by discussing the consequences of his own honest historical inquiry. You may think it is out of place for me to mention names of the anti-seedliners. Before I wrote one jot, Jeffrey A. Weekly, in his The Satanic Seed Line, Its Doctrine and History, wrote this on page 29. And Clifton, quoting Weekly, says, If you have encountered an argument, and you are sincerely seeking an answer against two seed line, I suggest that you first completely study it out in God's Word. Look up definitions, check parallel passages, be sure of the context, etc., after that, I suggest you contact men such as Pete Peters, Dan Gentry, Earl Jones, Jack Moore, etc. From Jeffrey A. Weekly's comment here, there can be little doubt where Pete Peters and the three others mentioned stand on 2C line. After Weekly, writing a book against the 2C line doctrine, you surely wouldn't expect him to recommend someone who didn't agree with him, would you? Jeffrey A. Weekly was an anti-seedliner, and he knew Pete Peters was an anti-seedliner also. To the date of this writing, there is no public evidence that Pete Peters has changed his position on the subject, and I don't believe he ever will, and of course he never did, and now he is deceased. He may make all kinds of derogatory statements about the Jews, but he will never say, as our Messiah did, that they are genetically satanic. If he ever does, he will lose half of his following, one way or the other. The only way he could keep them is to talk out of both sides of his mouth, like Eli James. He must continue to try to please both the two seed liners and the anti seed liners in his audience to keep the lucre flowing in. With the message of two seed liners, there is little financial support. All this is in the all this, Clifton says, and concludes in the last line of his presentation here, all this is in defense of the late Bertrand Compare and Wesley Swift. And of course, Compare and Swift were continually under attack by men such as Pete Peters, Ted Wyland, Dan Gentry, Earl Jones, Jack Moore, Dave Barley, Richard Dick Nimella, and a thousand other clowns who claim to be identity Christians. None of them are truly identity Christians, as they utterly refuse to identify the tares along with the wheat. How do we survive the harvest if we are caught frolicking with the tares, simply because men presumed to be teachers deceived us by refusing to acknowledge the devil? Thank you.
Thank you for listening. <laughs> Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. We will be back tomorrow with Arthur Lee. Thank you and good night.